Hello and welcome to a new podcast from the London Library, in which interesting people tell us about the books that have shaped their lives. I'm Philip Marshall, Director of the London Library, and our first guest is author and historian Hallie Rubenhold. Welcome, Hallie. Hello. Lovely to have you with us. I know you're a library member, so we've seen you around the library lots and lots recently. And the last time you were in, you were talking about your your wonderful new book, The Five, The yes. Untold Lives of uh, the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper, which has done very well for you, I believe. Yes. Yeah. The book has um, been very popular. It's uh, gone into the bestseller list. Um, but I think most importantly, it's really helping to change the narrative about how we think about Jack Ripper, um, how we reframe the murders, and it brings the victims into the story. While you've been speaking about the the five on your sort of speaking tour, as it were, including here at the library, um, you got quite a lot of social media kind of feedback mm. about um, uh, not just the fact that this was a great new book that um, was telling this untold story, but you got quite a lot of negative feedback as well didn't yeah. you how, how was that yeah to, to I mean I, I I've been pretty heavily trolled mm. um it kind of comes in waves and and touch wood as I'm saying this it's gone a bit quiet now which I'm really pleased about um but I I mean there are people called ripperologists who have devoted their lives to trying to figure out who Jack the Ripper was um and some of them you know are interested in more kind of peripheral things surrounding the story of Jack the Ripper such as policing or the lives of the poor and these sorts of things but they find a community within ripperology um and um they don't like that I have written this book um because well, first of all, I mean, I've been accused of terrible things. They've accused me of lying. They've accused me of suppressing evidence. They've they've compared me to David Irving, the Holocaust denier, which I just think is absolutely yeah. shocking. Yeah. Um, and it's all because they simply won't accept that a lot of the evidence which they think is fact isn't fact at all. Mm. You know, it's stuff that was written in newspapers. It's stuff that we cannot take on face value simply because it's in a document. And I explain why throughout my book. But they are absolutely intent on ignoring this. And and the reason for this is if they embrace what it is that I am saying, it's an existential threat to Ripperology. Because if you're intent on figuring out who Jack the Ripper was... And then somebody says, well, all of these documents that you've been using, you know, we, we can't we can't accept what they're saying. Um, then there is no ripperology. Mm. Then you will not actually figure out who Jack the Ripper was. Mm. Um, and and, you know, and, and that that's too much for a lot of people. Mm. And do you think um any of that is coming about, any of that trolling is coming about because you're a woman, right? Oh, God, absolutely. Yeah. I'm mean, The misogyny involved in this is, is terrible, you know, um, uh, you know, especially because my book, I feel I demonstrate quite well that three of the five were not, se- were not sex workers at all. Mm. They weren't involved in sex work. Um, and there's been a great hue and cry about this. Um, and some people have even said, well, you're lying. Not only are you lying about this, but you know what you've done and actually you're doing a disservice to the victims and actually this book is terrible because it robs the victims of their true identity. I mean, honestly. 
And there's been so much interest in Jack the Ripper over the years, so much written, but not telling the story of, of the women he killed. It's incredible. Was that a surprise to you when you started looking at it, the it was. It was a complete surprise. I, I couldn't believe when I set out to write this book that no one in 130 years had actually thought of approaching the story this way or actually even writing a full-length book. There have been um, there has been a, a small genealogical book written about them. Um, there have been, you know, they've been mentioned in other books, but nobody has actually written a dedicated book about them. And I just thought that was incredible. Why, why have we not thought about these women vis-a-vis -vis their murderer? Because I think we tend to think that the whole story of Jack the Ripper is um, about figuring out who he is. And these women just become uh, clues. They become like stepping stones to help us figure out who the Ripper was and, and solve the, the mystery. Mm -hmm. um, but what I really hope that we as a society will be able to do now is to redress this and really think about these women as human beings. Um, you know, I think we are so ready in our culture to just embrace Jack the Ripper as, you know, this terrible monster, this great story that people come from all over the world who come to the East End and, you know, they go on the Ripper tours. But most people haven't actually contemplated that the people at the centre of the story, the women he killed, were human beings with their own lives. Absolutely. And, and, and reading the book, what was fascinating was the history that you learn at the same time, the wider history. Uh, you're, you're wonderful explaining the sorts of lives and backgrounds that women had in those days. And they might have started in a certain social position and found themselves uh, in a much lower one. And just charting that, well, that decline really Rise into, into poverty. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, why do you think it is that there haven't been so many female writers writing in that area or telling those sorts of stories? Well, I don't know. It's it's really interesting. I I think we are now in a period where we are thinking more about the lost women's voices in history. And we see this coming out in a lot of novels that are being written. We see this in films. We see this um, being explored in nonfiction, that there is a whole woman's side of the story. And, and I think this is going to percolate through everything, uh, including true crime. Well, I think that's really interesting in the context of the books that you've selected today to talk about, uh, the, the, the books that have had a, had the greatest impact on you in your life. And um, I think there's a lot of strong female stories being told in these books as well. So I'm really looking forward to discussing them with you. To start with, I think going back to your childhood, <laughs> you've you've chosen the um, Little House on the Prairie series. Tell us, tell us why, tell us how that affected you. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because, you know, um, at first glance, that really looks like an enormous departure from what I ended up writing in the five. But actually, it's not at all, because it's the same time period. Really, when I was choosing these books, I was looking for books that were important books in my life and helped to shape who I became as a writer and as a historian. And Little House on the Prairie just gripped me. I mean, growing up in the US, you know, this is an enormous part of American history, the frontier. Mm. 
and it was all around me because I grew up in California, you know, and that is the Wild West, effectively. And the story of a girl and her family and how she grew up and what it was like and her daily experiences, you know, living in these incredibly harsh conditions just completely grips me because it was an alternative reality for me. And it really, really got me so interested in history because you could feel the experiences. You know, she writes about, you know, times of starvation, times of terrible winters. Mm. She writes about the food that they cooked, beds that they slept in, all of these things that would really intrigued me for the rest of my life and, you know, helped, I would say, to pave the path to me becoming a social historian. The books that we got here in front of you from the library's collection have in one of them a, a photograph of... Of Laura and her sisters. And her sister. I know, that is really, it's really an amazing photograph. I mean, I from what I know about this, and I've read um, Caroline Fraser has written recently, I think it was a Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder, which really looks at the broad sweep of her life mm -hmm. and the times in which she lived and really kind of puts back in all the ugliness that has been largely whitewashed from the books, yes. which were written for, for children. But this wonderful picture of Laura and her two sisters, um, Mary and uh, Carrie, and this was shortly after, I think, what was called the Long Winter, and it was a winter in, I think it was 1881 or 82, which was one of the worst in recorded history mm. in, in the Midwest of America. And you can see her little sister, Carrie, has, is literally starved. I mean, she's a little kind of weed of a child, gripping the back of her sister Mary's chair. And Mary had gone blind at that point. And, and Laura looks very robust and healthy mm. standing there. But it's just such a, an amazing glimpse into these girls' lives, you know, on the verge of womanhood. I think it's really moving. Yeah, absolutely. It actually reminds me of some of the photographs in The Five. Which are, mm, which, are, mm. which are wonderful to see when you're reading it. just, again, brings them to life as human yes. beings, yeah. um, which is really important. And in this book here from our collection, we have the uh, On the Banks of uh, Plum Creek. Um, and this this one I, I got out because it actually has the Garth Williams illustrations that yes. have become so well known. Yes, in connection with so the... well known. This is such a classic edition. Um, and these illustrations are fantastic. And you know, these illustrations really gripped me as a child, you know, to be able to visualize what it was that she was writing about. And if it opened up, I think is fishing with a, looks like some big screen over a waterfall or something like that. And um, um, it's, but, you know, a lot of this uh, was, you know, as I said, whitewashed mm. and critified much more so and you know there have been subsequent books which have, have been written that really look at how harsh and dangerous the conditions were and um what laura left out of the books and of course her daughter rose wilder lane who became quite a kind of hard-nosed uh, American female journalist at the beginning of the 20th century living in San Francisco and really quite progressive thinking. She ghost wrote these and uh, so she took Laura's original manuscripts and then she turned them into something was, which was more appropriate for children. Um, but a lot was left out, some really seedy, unpleasant things that happened to the family. That's really interesting, isn't it? 
Moving on to your next book selection, when did you first encounter Les Miserables? Oh, Les Miserables. Les Miserables was something that was introduced to me when I was studying French when I was in high school. And I had been told about this book, but then I had also learned that there was this fantastic play that um, had opened in New York uh, called Les Miserables and it was based on this book and I thought oh wow well you know I must have to read this and so I gave up reading it in French and then I went to the school library and I got it out in English and I was just transported to this world Mm. of early 19th century France and I just I just never encountered anything like this and well I mean I think Having, you know, having read, you know, obviously a lot of Dickens at school and mm. seeing that there was a whole equivalent to Dickens, which, again, I, I I feel that Hugo was much even darker than Dickens. I think that Hugo really, really goes for the really shadowy side and unapologetically so. I mean, I think Dickens can sweeten his books quite a lot. But I think I think Hugo, it's just pure kind of human struggle and the ups and downs of humanity on display. And I mean, this book is an epic. It's an absolute epic. And it examines all of the aspects of human nature, you know, good versus evil. I mean, that is, and what is good and what is evil? And, you know, you have the two main characters, um, uh, Jean Valjean and Javert, and it makes you ask those questions, you know, because you see them in the round and you see what what their motivations are, why they do what they do. Um, And then all the female characters as well. And it's got love in it, you know, the great romance and death and sacrifice. And, oh, it's just, it's just tremendous. It's a tremendous book. That copy you have in front of you is, is late 19th century. The library's copy, obviously getting borrowed a lot, which is fantastic. (laughs) Um, At the beginning, you've got the iconic There's the iconic picture of Cosette sweeping. Absolutely. Wonderful. Which is lovely. That's used on every every poster, every billboard between here and probably Japan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Wonderful. Let's talk about Clarissa, (laughs) which I've got piled up the the library's collection here of the eight volumes of Clarissa, which actually, you know, that's quite a that's forming quite a barrier between us on the desk. Yes, it is. It's enormous. Um, And and this is like I realized when um, when I had chosen all these books that there is definitely another theme here, which is size. Um, (laughs) I like big big books books and I cannot lie. Um, I love epics. I I just I love epics. I love this. The grand panorama, the big sweep of humanity, the story as it unfolds and how the characters develop over time. And um, and actually, you've made me come face to face with this because literally come face to face with it, with these enormous tomes sitting here. Um, So, yes. So so Clarissa. Clarissa was um, introduced to me as an undergraduate. Well, I studied history as an undergraduate, but I also kind of dabbled in uh, literature for a while. So I did my undergraduate work at the University of Massachusetts in mm-hmm. Amherst. Um, and one of the nice things about the US system is that they allow you to change your major and feel around for what it is that you really want to do. And in fact, I you know, I was very interested in history. I was studying that. And it was kind of a toss-up between history and literature. Um, and then I did a year abroad at UEA, 
Mm -hmm. And um, and it was doing a course in 18th century literature that uh, really just made me think, wow, 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 the 18th century. This is just such a fascinating time. And the book, the assigned reading over the summer was Clarissa. And, you know, I managed to get this book from the bookshop and I just my jaw dropped. I thought, oh, my God, this is this is enormous. It was literally the pieces of paper were as fine as, you know, a telephone book of the time, you know, um, almost transparent. And I read through this through the whole summer. And again, I was gripped by the otherworldliness of this story, of the fact that it introduces you to this entirely different set of morals and ethics and ideals that the 18th century subscribed to and what it meant to be a young unmarried woman and what it meant to be a, a, a patrician man and the privileges of one versus the privileges of the other. And then that society dictated, I mean, it's extraordinary because like Pamela, which Samuel Richardson also wrote, Clarissa is, is, is about a woman losing her virginity in rape, but then the consequences of what that loss of virginity means. And, and that just, astonished me that the loss of virginity could be, I mean, that a woman was a commodity and that that was, it was like a, a set line that once you cross that line, there was, there was, there was no going back. You were ruined by society standards. And that was so anathema to, you know, our understanding of sexual morality in the 20th century that I, you know, I was just astonished by this book. And I wanted to go deeper into this world and understand this world more. And, you know, I was off on, you know, reading everything I could about the 18th century and reading history and reading diaries and reading letters. And, and I knew I knew that's what I was going to go on to study. Right. So that was a pivotal moment. Yeah, absolutely. Then. You came and studied in the UK. Yeah. And then did you stay forever after that? And or? then I finished my final year in the US and then came and did my postgraduate work in the UK at Leeds. So you did your postgrad and then you stayed? And then I stayed. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I, I realised I wanted to do British history. Um, I wanted that to be my life study. Right. Um, I mean, I, I think one thing, I'm not sure if I said that my mother is American, my father is British. Right. So I have, I'm, I'm, I've lived half my life in the US and half my life in the UK and now actually slightly more than half my life in the UK. So I've lived longer in the UK than I have in the US. Um, but it, you know, it's the, the Britain and the experience and especially London history is, is really deeply, deeply rooted in me. And one of my first exposures to British history was just listening to my father's story about um, the Blitz and being an evacuee and, um, you know, my family stories and, um, and then going to London and meeting my family here. And, you know, I am truly binational. Mm. Did you ever think of becoming a historian of American history? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually love both. I would love to write a book about the Wild West, back to Laura Ingalls Wilder. Yes, the full yeah. coming back full, coming full circle. circle. Yeah, that exactly. would be that would be fantastic. Yeah. Have you researched your own family history here in London? I have, and it's really interesting. And one of the things I found was that actually my family lived in Whitechapel during the time of the Ripper. Oh, really? Yes, and um, that was really astonishing yeah um and also that my great-grandfather tried to immigrate to the u.s 
Um, and in, I think it was 1906, I was turned away um, at Ellis Island. And we, we're not sure why, wow. but he later ended up in Colney Hatch Asylum where he died. Um, and he had a mental illness, we're not sure what, but he died in 1914 of tuberculosis. That's a fascinating piece of family history. So we stay with your research interests with your next book choice, Lawrence Stone, Family, Sex and Marriage in England, 1500 to 1800. Another good sized book. Yes. Uh, so this is the history side of your, yeah. of your studies. Yeah. Great. Let's uh, well, hand that over to you there. Um, inside it, I have um, placed actually uh, Lawrence Stone's library um, membership details oh, um, so it looks like oh he God. he joined in 1941 wow. when he was uh, at oxford um and on the other side he left membership 1999 uh when he died so wow. I, I can't tell if he ever fell out of membership during that time but if if he if he didn't um then he was a member obviously for a very long time uh and while he was writing um the book in front of you that's that's remarkable well he he was and is a real historical or historian hero of mine um all of the books that he he's written i mean there's been so much work done in this area since then but he really opened this up and you know obviously a lot of his theories have been challenged and um you know there's so much scholarly work that's been done on this area but this is you know British social history. And, and in a sense, everything that I was searching for in Clarissa to try to better understand was largely in this book and other books that I subsequently read, which was how did this society work? What were the mechanics of this society? How did people how do people see themselves? How do people see the world that they lived in? Um, what were the actual experiences of everyday life? What was private life? You know, all the, all the questions we want to ask about history. I mean, maybe, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the one who wanted to ask, well, how did you go to the toilet? <laughs> yeah, good, good question. What happened when this cat? Or you know, like you know, and you know, were women women afraid of getting pregnant when they knew that childbirth was so dangerous? Mm. Um, you know, all of these things. I wanted answers to this, and to me, that seemed like the most interesting aspect of history. How did people live their everyday lives? Because that's what consumes us. That's what, you know, our, our lives, you know, the mundane, you know, where, you know, I've got to go to the supermarket and buy this. And my, you know, my partner has a dietary issue. Where do I get that food? And, and you know, do I need hypoallergenic pillows? And where do I get that? And, you know, do I have, you know, and, and how do I respond to this person when they, you know, send me an email? You know, all of this stuff, this is the, the bread and butter of our daily lives. And yes, we have bigger things going on in our lives. We have other things to think about. But it's that minutiae that is, I think, has fallen through the cracks of our telling and understanding of history. And I think it's an enormous mistake to leave that out because that will inform who we are, the decisions we make, how we make those decisions, and you know, more broadly, what happens in society. And what happens in society informs politics and, uh, and the economy and whether or not we go to war, whether or not we have elections, all of these other things. Mm. So. I feel incredibly passionately about the importance of social history. Um, and, and I think one of the things I find so frustrating is the degree to which 
social history has been often called women's history. And I say that in quotes. So, you know, there's this division in history where, you know, you have quote unquote important history, which is all about wars and generals and politics and politicians, you know, things that matter. And then all the stuff that happens behind closed doors that, you know, oh, that's largely the realm of women because women didn't have a public voice. And, so you get important and non-important, and that's been gendered. So you get men's and women's. And I just would like to see those barriers broken down because I think that is it's so deeply sexist. And it, it harkens back to the time when history was exclusively written by men and history was defined as the great deeds of great men. And we need to draw a line under that because mm. that is simply not applicable. He starts each chapter with a, with a quote, often a literary quote, which is quite nice. And the T.S. Eliot quote that he starts chapter two with is birth copulation and death that's all the facts when you come to brass tacks birth copulation and death yeah, absolutely <laughs> it's great so you've got the literature and the history going on in the one yeah, book there yeah um, yeah absolutely which is a theme and continues i know with fingersmith sarah waters another one of oh, our happy I, members here at the I london know, library i know sarah and um sarah and i know each other as well and um yeah, I, I, she's she's absolutely wonderful, um, and she's an amazing writer. And again, she really kind of helped me to formulate an idea of the type of books I like to read. Um, and I mean, Fingersmith is just just amazing. This book kept me up at night in the best possible way <laughs> <laughs> because I couldn't put it down. I, I could not, I went to bed with this book and I remember night after night just losing sleep because I couldn't put it down. I I couldn't stop turning the pages. And then, you know, I'm not going to give it away if anybody hasn't read it, but there is a twist that you didn't, that you just don't see coming. And I remember sitting up and going, <laughs> oh my God. She completely takes you into that world and she immerses you in that world. And I think every book I've subsequently written, I have thought, I want to write a book that I would really want to read. And that means I want to use all of the narrative devices, even in nonfiction, that you find in fiction um, without playing around with the with with the truth itself. You know, I mean, it's it's very possible to tell true stories without bending the truth. It's just what you highlight and what you what you foreground and what you you put in the background and, and what you choose to tell at what point. Because ev everybody's life is a drama. It's just picking out the elements of that and arranging them. Um, and so this book I mean, the drama in this book, not only does she totally immerse you in, in, in that world, in that Victorian world, and the story of these two women, and um, and also, you know, she tells a story which isn't told often, well, at all in Victorian fiction, which is a story of two lesbian women, you know, and that's, you know, wow, that's refreshing. That's a totally different take. And I want new stories. I mean, it's very, very rare that I will watch films twice or reruns of television shows or read books. I mean, sometimes I will read books twice, but I just think there's so many stories out there to be read and I'm always looking for a new story. Entertain me, show me something new. And so I, I've taken all of these concepts with me. I mean, Sarah's books, I mean, Sarah's such a good teacher in for for an author, for a novelist, but also for people who write narrative nonfiction, because you know she 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 takes you into that world totally. And so I thought, 
when it comes time to writing nonfiction, when it comes time to writing novels, I wanted to make sure I gripped my readers and I made them sit up at night turning the pages as well, because that is deeply pleasurable as a reader. You couldn't ask for anything more. Mm. Tell us a little bit more about the writing process for you. Um, you're a member of the library. Was the, was the library helpful in writing The Five, for example? And the library is absolutely, absolutely essential to writing everything. I mean, so I've written basically three books in the library. Um, and um, oh my gosh, I would not I would not be able to manage as a writer without the London Library. And I will get on my soapbox and proselytize till the cows come home. Not only does the library provide a fantastic resource and, you know, if you have a question about something, you can go look it up. You can go find that um, out, out of print book somewhere. But also I found the community of writers here is just fantastic because writing is such a lonely slog. But when you are surrounded by other people who are on this same path with you and, you know, you can go for coffees and you can go for lunch and you can have a chat and it makes all the difference and it's all about mindset really you know um writing is like you know long distance running or like being a tennis champion and if your brain isn't there if you're not emotionally there you can't perform and so having a community is so essential to for me at least to my writing career well, wonderful well thank you ever so much for coming in you're and talking to us and it's been wonderful and we look forward to seeing you soon yes absolutely i'll be around <laughs> thanks ali thank you for listening and to find out more about the london library please visit our website at londonlibrary.co.uk please check the links in the show notes and rate us and subscribe <laughs>